So, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us by your word and through your Holy Spirit. Help us to know who you are and this morning how we should pray to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, this morning's reading uh, is in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Um, and if you've got a Bible or on your device, you might want to just get that out. Um, and it's talking about um, praying for boldness. Are you bold? Are you a bold person when it comes to the gospel? This morning, uh, we're looking at the longest prayer in the book of Acts. Peter and John had come up against some opposition to the spread of the gospel. Um, fair bit of opposition, actually. They were chucked in jail. Um, they, they'd healed a man who was crippled from birth. This man, um, it says he was lame, um, but as I realised that they actually had to carry him around every day, that's a pretty fair degree of lameness. He's actually incapacitated. And he was over 40 years old. And they healed him in the name of Jesus. And this man was running and dancing and praising God immediately afterwards. And that is quite amazing when you think of somebody sitting and lying as if they were on a bed for 40 years with no muscle, bulk, and it's quite amazing. Um, this kind of miracle, as far as I know, is completely unheard of in today's world. Most healings today are much more progressive in nature and generally much less spectacular. Now, I'm not going to talk about today why that might be, um, uh, but what we want to see here, um, and as, I, as Derek said a couple of weeks ago, that miracles are signs. And signs point to something. Like a, you guys would have noticed a signpost as you entered Durham Bend. You may or may not have. Just think, think, pretty sure there's one there. And, and we don't want you to go out of town and sit around that sign and gaze at the sign all day. We actually want you to uh, go where the sign points to. Durham Bend. When you come in here, enjoy it and have fellowship, meet people. And in the same way, this healing miracle is a sign that points to Jesus. Um, interestingly, the authorities of the day actually didn't object to the miraculous healing. They actually, there's so many people that saw it, they actually couldn't do much about that. But what they objected was what the sign pointed to. They objected to Jesus and the claim that he was raised from the dead the claim that he could forgive sins. And rather than believing in him, they hated him. They hated the only one that can make us right with God. And so Peter and John, after spending a night in custody, were warned not to speak to anybody or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. They were threatened, further threatened, and then let go. And this is where we're up to today. Acts 4, verse 23, if you want to follow it through. Uh, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, 
they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Because the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What an amazing prayer and what an astonishing outcome. The building was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak with boldness. I reckon the structure of this prayer is interesting. As they pray for a specific need, these Christians, they take five verses to tell God who he is, and then they take two verses to ask him what they want. Is that how you pray? So I'd say, I probably don't, I'll probably go straight to what I want. Interesting, God doesn't actually need us to tell him who he is. He already knows that. I think he does. He hasn't forgotten. But we Christians need to know who God is because it affects how we pray. Sovereign Lord, they pray. Sovereign means supreme ruler. Lord is to whom we bow or give allegiance. In our prayers, we need to know and confess that our Lord who is completely sovereign is the kind of God who can answer and will answer our prayers. He controls all things. All things. I hope that's not disturbing for you. Isaiah 46.9 also tells us that. Not only does he control all things, he also made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The doctrine of creation is an important foundational truth for our Christian faith. Coincidentally, it's the very first thing the Bible talks about. Genesis 1. The implication here for us is that if God made all things, then all things are responsible to him and all things are kind of owned by him. You think, if you make something, it's kind of yours. Especially if you come up with the materials yourself. Oh, I saw this funny joke on Facebook the other day. This scientist is talking to God and he says, God, we're getting pretty smart here now and we've figured out 
how to make people out of the soil. We are as good as you. We don't need you anymore. And God said, oh yeah, go ahead. He said, so we don't need you and we can just make people out of the soil. God said, yeah, cool. Uh, uh, <coughs> get your own soil. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's kind of not. Um, instead of honouring God, the kings of the earth raged and plotted against him. They conspired to kill him. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel all conspired to come against God and his son, Jesus. They came against him, but the, the scripture says they plotted in vain. Their, their plan backfired. Jesus, who they killed, God then raised to life. As it became evident, he was the saviour that they've discarded. Now, as we look at verses 25 to 28 as a whole, we say, why did the Gentiles rage? That's the question. The answer is to do, in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God rules even over the sinful deeds of men and he uses them for his purposes. Don't let that disturb you. The dark and sinister plan to kill Jesus was actually God's plan to save us from sin. Predestination can be a very difficult concept to get your head around. And if you struggle with it, you're going to struggle with today's reading. You might even want to get a pair of scissors out and cut the page out of the Bible. Don't do that. But it's also found in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. And predestination is a very important concept in the Christian faith. I'd like to insert a whole extra sermon here about it, but it's not what we're talking about today. And it raises a lot of questions. But whether you like the idea or not, predestination is based on scripture and it's the foundational argument here today behind the prayer request. Um, verses 25 and 26 are a quote from Psalm 2. King David's mouth but spoken by the Holy Spirit. A prophecy hundreds of years earlier. Now putting prayer into scripture is good. Not because God has forgotten what he told the prophets years ago, but because we need the word of God in our prayers. If our prayer is not grounded in the reality of who God is and what he says in his word, then we won't pray according to his will. We can't make God do something against the nature of his word. People might say that the doctrine and theology are not important if you can have the power of the Holy Spirit. But these early Christians knew better. Good doctrine leads to true understanding of who God is and assurance of salvation. A godly, spirit-led prayer flows from and is well grounded in good biblical doctrine. So, uh, now, so far, the prayer has been all about who God is, right? And we get to verse 29, we finally arrive 
uh, the request. There's four of them. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. In other words, Lord, they've commanded us not to speak the son's name anymore. Hey, Lord, this is important. The son's reputation's on the line. Look at this threat. I think there's part of, hey, this gospel work is dangerous. We're getting chucked in jail here. Now, what they could have said was, smite our enemies. Open their eyes. Give us safety. I would pray that way. But what they said was, give us boldness so that we don't cave into their threats. Hmm. Verse 29b says, Grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The prayer for them was boldness but that God would perform healing and signs and wonders as a sign that points to Jesus. This is so relevant to us today. While threats of persecution is actually a real thing in some other countries, the threats to us here in Australia in proclaiming the name of Jesus are much more subtle. We have entertainment that bombards us incessantly. We have social media, TV entertainment, you just pay for it and it pops up. It's, it's just, it will never stop. 24 hours a day, you wake up in the middle of the night, a bit bored, or can't get to sleep. Bang, there's entertainment. It's on our phones, around the clock. And it screams, don't think about God, just keep your mind busy. Keep him out of your mind, stay entertained. Just, just if you've got something to think about, you're okay. Don't think about God. We have medical technology so advanced that if a doctor can't find out what's wrong with me, I think he's not doing his job good enough and I jump up and down about it. The last thing we do is resort to thinking to God for help. We have weak churches that have embraced the values of the world and have hamstrung themselves, unable to communicate the true gospel. Even in churches, we can worship the idols of leisure and entertainment. We shouldn't. These are our threats against proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But they prayed. They prayed. And when they had prayed, the place that they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You can notice the similarities here between this passage and Pentecost. Both times they were preceded by earnest prayer. And both times God gave a miraculous sign showing that his Holy Spirit was present. The result in both cases was that they went out and they preached the word of God. In Pentecost, they preached it in all different language, the good things of God. And here they continued to preach the word of God with boldness. They didn't psych themselves up for boldness. They didn't say, we've got to be bold. They prayed for it and God gave it to them. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 says, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I've got to admit there's times that I've been ashamed of the gospel. It's a bit irky in places, isn't it? You know, a bit about sin, a bit about Jesus dying on the cross. There's been times that I'd rather talk about the signposts than what Jesus did on the cross. But if you want to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work around you, share the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. Don't underestimate the fact that a heart changed in repentance to God is the biggest miracle you'll ever, ever see. I have to ask the question like I ask the children, what's the gospel? I, I can't assume that today. You know what the biggest problem that this world has ever faced is? What's the biggest problem in the world? Greed. It's not climate change. It's not poverty. It's not evil people. It's not even... Did you say Presbyterians or vegetarians? <laughs> Either of those. My son's a Presbyterian, that's okay. It's not even Satan himself. It's the coming wrath of God. God is actually sovereignly in control of this world. He's not out of control. It's not out of control like some people might tell you. And as I said to the kids, we're like a little kid who's done a bad thing to his dad's car, hypothetically. He may have been skidding the wheels when he was driving home from the school bus. And dad hasn't found out. I mean, but the tyres got ballier and ballier and ballier. <laughs> but when his dad does find out, hypothetically, I can assure you he will suffer the full force of his dad's anger. Those winter treads cost a lot of money. The world is in such a position. The judgment of God hasn't come yet, but it will. And when it does, it will bring the full wrath of God. I want to read a little more about this from Revelation 20.12. It says, And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a very scary thought. In the light of Romans 3.23 that says, Everybody has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is good enough. The scales of God's justice system don't operate the way that you think. They don't weigh good deeds against bad deeds. They weigh our deeds against the holiness of God. And we pay the penalty for every single one. The only way we can survive is to have our name found in the book of life. 
as a rough farmer at Dearnbandy, I don't think I'll make my way into many books. Um, and I don't, how am I going to make it into this one? To do this, we need to be made righteous. It means we need to be made, righteous means be right with. I need to be made right with God. This means our sins must be washed away, leaving us clean. If you are made righteous, you don't receive the wrath of God. Romans 3 verse 22 says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's grace. Today, as we prepare for communion, it kind of helps us understand the million dollar question. How does this happen? What do we have faith in? Do we, do we have faith in God that we're going to stop sinning? Or, or do we trust in his good deeds? What do we have faith in? At the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus sat down with his disciples at a feast called the Passover. And it was a feast that symbolised the passing over the doorposts of the Israelites of the wrath of God as they prepared to, to leave Egypt. You remember the story, it was the tenth plague and Moses was pleading with Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, yeah. Nah. Moses says, well, God said he's going to kill all of your firstborn if you don't let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, no. wonder why, because he'd already been hit with frogs and all sorts of plagues before that. But God had hardened his heart. And they had to sacrifice a lamb and get the blood and sprinkle it over the doorposts. And you know that actually says in the Bible that it's God who passed over the doorposts. The blood protected the Israelites from the wrath of God. That wrath that killed every firstborn in Egypt that night except for the Israelites who had the blood on the doorpost. So they sat down with Jesus to eat this celebratory meal, to remember it, to tell the story. And as they sat down to the Passover meal with Jesus, he did something different. While they were eating, Jesus took a piece of bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciple, the disciples saying, and this is in Matthew 26, 26. Take, eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus was saying is, I'm about to go to the cross as the Passover lamb. I have lived sinlessly, but you have been sinful. I am about to die as the perfect sacrifice so that you can have my righteousness. I take the punishment for your sin. You take the reward I earned by my righteous life. We do a swap. That's what Christianity is all about. This is the message that Peter and John were locked up for. It's a vulgar message to a self-righteous world. 
but what a fantastic message to someone who can admit I'm a sinner. If you're considering faith in Christ, I encourage you to think seriously about this and accept his grace. You're welcome at this communion table. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. If you do have faith, even some, as small as a mustard seed, as you ponder anew his grace to you, remember that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, but for those who are being saved, that's us, it's the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we participate in communion today, let's freely confess our sins to you in the quietness of our minds with the assurance of knowing that you have paid it all. Through your sacrifice on the cross, you have forgiven all our sin. Praise your name. As we eat and drink together, let us remember the covenant that you made with us. When we trust in you, our sins are forgiven. Father, I pray today that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us a tremendous boldness to proclaim your gospel to those around us, in our homes, in our workplace, wherever we find ourselves. May that boldness that you gave those early Christians be ours also. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.